Bonus Tracks is the official blog of Spotlight On, available at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. There you'll find additional artist interviews, music commentary, and more. Have a look. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on the innovative pedal steel guitar player, Susan Alcorn. While Susan got her start playing in country and western bands in Texas, she has taken the pedal steel into new and uncharted territories, exploring 20th century classical music, improvisational jazz, and various world musics. On her latest project, Canto, Susan explored Chilean folk music and Nueva Canción, which translates as New Song, and refers to an intertwined musical and leftist social movement so important to the pro-democracy organizations throughout Latin America over the last 50 years or more. Released back in November 2023, Canto features Alcorn's Septeto del Sur, a new ensemble featuring a cross-generational group of musicians versed in folk and improvisational traditions. Enjoy our talk. spent a bunch of time with the new record over the last few days. It's really quite powerful and lovely. I look forward to digging into a conversation with you about it, but I, I thought perhaps we could start with just a little bit about your journey and a little bit of background. One of the things that, that struck me in your biography was the diversity of music that you grew up with, even in your immediate household, the modern classical and pop music and it really seemed to to set the stage for your sort of omnivorousness and curiosity. And I'm just, I'm curious if, if you at all buy into the idea that being surrounded by a diversity of sounds prepares the ear in a way to be open. I know, and I ask you the question that way. In my own experience, there's been music that couldn't penetrate at first. And I had to come at it again after sort of the prep work of listening to other music. I had to learn how to expand my ears. And I wonder if that organic process happened for you in the house you grew up in. So my parents basically listened to big band music, which encompassed everything from Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald to the Harmonic Hats or Mickey Finn, you know, that kind of Names that don't mean anything to anybody probably a little bit younger than us. I, I, I liked some classical music. There are things that, that I liked in the big band music, but at the time I thought, oh man, this is just, you know, it was this fifties and sixties. And by the time I became more into music, it was, was the sixties. And there's a, the generation gap sort of thing in music. And I guess it's like people now say, hey, boomer or whatever, you know. <laughs> I guess it was my version. Didn't really care for it. I thought it was dumb. Not dumb, but old. What older people. Yeah. So I got a transistor radio, I think, when I was maybe in fourth grade, which was a new thing. I started listening to the radio station. So basically it was the top 40 
Petula Clark and that sort of thing. That kind of drew me into blues and to folk music. And I, I think when you're a certain age, maybe depending on your personality or your psyche or whatever, everything is it's like a smorgasbord. You know, it's like, oh, this, that, oh, yeah. oh wow. And I like psychedelic music. The two things, I guess, that kind of maybe headed me sort of in this direction, although it took a while, were I first heard John Coltrane on an underground radio station back when those were big and the disc jockeys could choose whatever they wanted to play and that sort of thing. The piece that I heard was, I think it was Invocation Bohm, and it was from an album, John Coltrane, his, His Greatest Years. I had to get that album. And to get albums back in Orlando, Florida, Maitland, Florida, where I was living, I couldn't drive yet. Oh, I had to get in a little, little canoe and paddle it to this lake and then dock it where there was a record store nearby and order it and get it, you know, a month later. <laughs> That's incredible. And then there was Freak Out by um, oh, yeah. Frank Zappa Invention. And with Freak Out, he had a long list of influences. There was a quote by Edgar Perez. Oh, man. I got to check out Edgar Perez. I did the same thing, got in the boat, and I listened to his piece, Amerique, A-M-E-R-I-Q-U-E-S, Americas or something. Like 10th, 11th, 12th grade. So I take acid to that record when my parents went around and, and jump around and dance and all that sort of thing. I was really into blues. Yeah. And played slide guitar, and I saw Muddy Waters, which was a, a big thing. And then from there, it was just, I don't know, there's just all these Bulgarian music, Hindustani music, African music, all these things. So maybe back up a little bit. I went to blues, I played blues, I was into rock and that sort of thing, which I got from the Cream and Jimi Hendrix, who were popular at the time. When I was about 18, 19, I was like, well, for one, I decided I never wanted to play an, a, a, an electric instrument again. Wow. So I bought a dobro. I liked a lot of like country rock, bluegrass, and later what we would call classic country. It just seemed fresh to me. You know, it just, there was, I don't know, not an innocence. That's not the right word for it, but they reminded me of sitting by a creek and just watching the water flow over the rocks or, or just, you know, fresh air. And when I played dobro, things that I wanted to play on it were, were too difficult for, for the instrument. Yeah. So I, I got into pedal steel guitar and uh, I started playing country music, what we called country back then, which is, I guess they call it classic, you know, Merle Hacker and Donald Bard and whatever. I really got into that. Moved to Texas. In 1981, and played professionally for 20 years or, or so. But at nighttime, or not nighttime, daytime, because I'd play at night, I would listen to John Coltrane and try to learn how to play Naima. I, I started to become aware of, of other music in addition to that, other ethnic music, uh, other classical musics, and taking all that in. And I wasn't in a place where I could study that or, or learn it. I don't know, I picked up what I could just from osmosis, I guess. I think that kind of stayed with me in that 
sort of informs the music that I play now. It's interesting when you were talking about your early interest in pursuit of the classic country music and that simpler or organic or innocent tone to it or aspect of it. It seems like that was in the air at the time, almost as a reaction to like the bombast or the excess of a lot of the late 60s, early 70s, sort of like like it seemed like it came out of the psychedelic movement, people going back to a simpler music or a more quiet sound after going through such a, a turbulent period. And I wonder if that was that at all part of the experience for you? I would say probably usually, yes. I would say that's what turned me on to, to country rock, to Poco and the Eagles, the Riders, Purple Sage, that sort of thing. However, when I started playing country music, the people that I was playing with, most of them who were my age or a few years older, never had that. They had grown up with that sort of music. And they knew all the going back to the 1940s, which I had to learn too if I wanted to get gigs and, and play. That was like a whole different worldview. They'd never been through that. They probably didn't know who Poco was or the Grateful Dead, you know. So it was, it was kind of a different scene for the most part. Yeah. I think that sort of affected me and, and the band, uh, America, you know, Kenny of Americana. Two things you mentioned also that sort of were springboards for me as well into all kinds of musics were the Grateful Dead and, and Frank Zappa. And people who listen to this podcast have heard me say this before, but when I was around the same age as, as when you first heard Coltrane, one, I was reading an interview with one of the members of the Grateful Dead and they mentioned the John Coltrane record and it was Africa Brass. And I was like, I need to go check that out. As you do when you're exploring all these warrens of music. Sure. And I bought it on cassette <laughs> and I brought it home and it was impenetrable to me at the time. I had no context for just this brass onslaught of music. It was so dense. But I figured, well, if my heroes like it, I, there, I, there must be something to it. And I stuck with it. And it's just funny how, again, your ears need to learn how to hear it. And that happened for me. And it unlocked a 50 plus year journey of music. That's just, it's incredible. But, but I couldn't hear it at first. Couldn't hear it at first. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because when I first heard it, I was like, wow, this is good. But I think my introduction to that was psychedelic music yeah. and just being weird. And maybe I was weird, different from other people, different things that affected me. And I think especially when you're young, that your nervous system, as much as it is your ears or your brain that kind of listens to and appreciates music. I think that's why maybe why the Beatles were so popular. It was just a different sound. The, the songs weren't necessarily all that different. There was just something about it. It just got into our, our bones. So I think my introductory drug to all that was probably psychedelic music. Yeah, I can relate to that. Part of what you're saying as well, I, I wanted to get to this a little later, but because you introduced the concept, when you came to that notion or that, that sort of theory about listening and the full body experience, the full integration of your nervous system, I'm curious as to whether that preceded or was born out of your interactions with Pauline Oliveros and the notion of deep listening. Maybe. I think I was just thinking back and saying, why did I like them? Yeah. Why did... It's my age like them. Pauline opened a lot of other doors. Listening with your body is, is one of them. 
before we pivot into some questions about the new record, I, I, one other thing I wanted to ask you about was, and again, you mentioned seeing Muddy Waters and your interest in the blues and a lot of those sort of early mid-century blues players. Did you take anything from either seeing them perform live in and around Chicago or the music itself that you could point to that that still is with you in your music as you've journeyed into, for lack of a better way to say it, sort of more experimental grounds or more even cerebral musics? How does the music of the gut inform what you do today? I think as, as musicians, we draw in all the wells. They're always with us in some way. With both blues, there is a simplicity to it, which is great if you're trying to learn how to play. But there's just something about that sound like listening to old Charlie Patton records or something like that, which, you know, I was a teenager at the time. And there, there, there's an emotional experience. There's a physical and an emotional thing to the blues. It's sad lyrics. And same with country. There's a lyricism and a directness to it. And I think that directness stayed with me. I prefer direct ways of saying things with music. That's interesting. That brings me to wanting to ask about the music on Canto. Could you tell me a little bit about your personal affinity and your personal journey to the music that you're exploring now on this new record? I guess the first time that I played, which is where a lot of the music comes, I mean, that's basically where that the inspiration for that album was in 1973. I was in college and I was a left-wing activist at the time and uh, sitting the coup on TV and just seeing the faces of these people and these, they're wearing you know, scarves and it's cold and, and these men with black hair and dark beards. and I don't know, it just hit me. Then in 2003, I was also a school teacher at the time, teaching English as a second language. I wanted to go somewhere to improve my Spanish. I could have gone to Mexico or Nicaragua or a hundred other places, but I, for some reason I chose Chile. Maybe that had something to do with it, probably. I was at a language school, and the owners of the language school were former exiles from the Pinochet dictatorship. While I was there, I brought a guitar to study Chilean folkloric music. And I was already familiar with people like Mercedes Sosa, the Argentinian singer, and Violeta Pine, the originator of the new song that went up Cancion in Chile. I would buy CDs, and I'd buy like videotapes. People would be like in this public square you say, I want this and this, and then they'd come back and give it to you like a day later because they'd burned it themselves. <laughs> you got to make money somehow. Yeah. I became friends with a young woman who grew up in Venezuela because her parents were exiled. I was given a ticket for admission to this meeting of the survivors of the concentration camps, so the survivors of the torch. So I went to this meeting and... A few people got up and spoke. And before that, there was this choir singing Beethoven's Oh, to joy. Where these people give talks. And then afterwards, these people would, and here I'm an outsider. 
to in the United States, not even really understanding Spanish that well. And they're all hugging each other. And this man who took my ticket, you know, it's like, oh, I'm an American or this and that. And he put his hand on, on my shoulder just for a second. This older man, and I just felt something. You know, I thought, Jesus, this is, I don't have words to describe it. Mm. Go, going back to Texas, I started listening to more and more of the Nueva Canción music and started incorporating that into my solo sets. And then when Trump came to power, I guess my political instinct just woke up again. I would play these pieces in my solo sets, and I would talk about them. And I would talk about what happened after Vara, how he was murdered. I would talk about where different tunes came from. And I, I think my solo sets in that way became a little bit more political, at least in part. And I would end it with a solo version of A Song with the Birds, which was Paulo Casals, who was in exile from Spain after the Spanish Civil War. And that was his song, the song that he would play at the end of his performance and dedicate that to refugees everywhere. Yeah. I applied for a grant a couple of years ago, which came through and that gave me the money to go down to Chile and, and record that album. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you're interested in contributing to Bonus Tracks, the official blog of this podcast, visit SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click Call for Submissions. That's where we post details on what we're currently looking for and how to be considered. And now, back to Spotlight On. As I was approaching the music, there's so many entryways to it. Like there's just the, there's the powerful melodic sense of that music and the emotional conveyance that is just inherent to that music. But of course, the political element that you talk about. And I was very curious when I first began listening as to whether that was going to be present. Something I found listening to your record was that even in the music, even in the, the pieces that are instrumental, I could feel the presence of all of that history, if that makes sense. I'm not massively knowledgeable. I, I, I have maybe the 101 level knowledge of what happened in Chile. And I know enough about that music to be dangerous, <laughs> but it's not like I bring a fully informed knowledge base to it, but the communication is there. It's very interesting to me that you say the times here brought that back up to the, the surface for you. When you mentioned that you started to bring the songs into your performance repertoire, what was that act for you? Was it protest? Was it warning? It's one thing to to resonate with the music again, but what were you hoping to achieve by presenting it? I just felt I had, as far as my live performances and playing maybe an arrangement of a Victor Hanna tune or El Pueblo Nido Hamasita Cito or other pieces, I, I, I just felt a need to go in, in that direction. And people who came to, would come to, after, after I played, sometimes they had to, come and thank me. And people say, they, they never knew all this stuff was going on, that the U.S. was doing this over here and that over here. This all, of course, preceded Trump. But Trump was, I guess, the thing that just got me going. You know, I just felt I had to do something and this is a way I could contribute, I guess. There's so much of the history that we know about in that reemerges from that period. 
I, I would say most Americans, if you said Chile to them, they would not have any idea about what happened there <laughs> and their own government's role in it. It's really 50 years later and it's still, it's non-existent in the educational realm of this country's, like, we just don't know about it as a people. And, and, and the same thing, it's not like Chile was alone in that. Same thing happened in Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, El Salvador. And it's been going on at least the 1950s. And it's, it's still going on. When Trump came to power, you know, I got on my horse and started thinking about that sort of thing and bringing it to the music. I was just like, person speaking in Central Park, you know. I'm very curious about the confluence of the musicians that were brought together to, to play this music with you. In the material I read about the album, there's a little bit made of the fact that there's like traditional folk players as well as experimental improv players. That could be a recipe for disaster, <laughs> which clearly it's not in this case. But it's not a given that it's going to work, right? That everybody will be able to find their place to to contribute or to or to or that the results will be as beautiful as they are here. And I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about how these musicians were assembled. How were they brought together? And what was their understanding of what the attempt was going to be here? Over the years, I had met various Chileans, partially because I talk about music and play that music and I play solo. And one of the Chileans I met was the guitarist, Foto Alvarez, who's an experimental, wildly experimental kind of musician, kind of like um, Derek Bailey or something hmm. from Chile became friends, and we played a few times together in the years before that. And we would play a couple of cancion tunes in the middle of our craziness. So when I wrote this, when I wrote the music, wanted to put together a band, I, I had an idea of the instrumentation that I wanted. The only musician I knew in Chile was Toto. And the violin player, I had met her before, she had been playing with a Chilean kind of prog rock group up in St. John's, Canada. It was when I played and she came up and we sang. She sang a Victor Hara tune, played violin while I played the steel. It just sort of happened. So I kept her in mind. Not going to be a nueva. Uh, the rest of them were people that Toto pitched in. And the experimental musicians, like Amanda Irarasava, the bassist, She's pure experimental, but she has a, a deep background in that kind of music. I think they learned it growing up. It, it, it was in the air, and it was her that, that wound up singing that last tune, the uh, the Victor Hara song, and the Regita de in Paz. So Toto chose chose the musicians, the bass player, and myself, and the violinist, and Toto, the guitarist. They, they were all familiar with, with, with free improvisation, which is a part of the record. And they could read better than I can. I can write, but I can't read so. And the, the flute player had never improvised before. And he had only played like classical music and Nueva Cancion, new song. So he had played Nueva Cancion with one of the founders of that genre who just died last year. 
he had to improvise the Chirango player who also played the cana, which is uh, an Andean flute, and the drummer were brothers from the north of Chile and had more of the Andean kind of Bolivian roots to the music and to their outlook. So it was interesting. The improvisation, there were times when I'd explain, this is, this is what we're looking for. This is how to, especially where everybody's improvising at the same time. You don't, a train wreck, and you don't want everybody just being scared to, to, to do something, to, to play a note. So I would sort of give my view on how I was kind of hoping that this would turn out. And the musicians, every one of them were, were excited about the music. They felt we were doing something important because, like you said, Chile is not, and most peoples, they don't know that much about it. Chile, in a way, is like New Zealand. They, they think that themselves at the end of the world, way down in South America, separated from the rest of South America by the Andes, and separated far south to far north. It's just a thin little slice of the country. So I think they were generally enthusiastic about their music reaching maybe a different audience in an audience outside of Chile. I think one of the best sentences I've heard all day is a Chilean prog rock band playing in St. John's, Canada. <laughs> Not something I expected to hear. <laughs> it's beautiful. They were, they were playing as a tribute to Piazzolla. Oh, incredible. And Nuevo Tango. Yeah, Jazz Tango. There was a festival up in St. John's, the festival of the weirdest musicians and who could get there. And they just happened to be there. I, know, I was lucky. What instrument do you compose at, or you do you sit down at a sheet of paper? Basically, I, I will compose a melody on my on my pedal steel. Wow, really? Because that's what sings to me. So the three contos that are in the middle of the, the album, there's the beginning and ending, which is just pedal steel and bass, and I add the bass in later, and then I sort of go from there. I'll maybe maybe this would sound nice, or I just get ideas, things which is come into my head. And sometimes I would use a piano to try to, because if I only stick with the pedal steel guitar, then I'm going in places that are comfortable for my fingers. They're easy to get on that instrument, which is limiting. So the piano and then the Sibelius musication application, you can kind of, oh, this and that, you move things around. That's basically what I did. 
So I started on the pedal steel and then went on from there. Yeah. The other two pieces that I wrote, I had written earlier and I had played as a solo. That would be the first piece, Sweet Butter Todos, and the next to last piece, Mercedes Sosa. That first piece that opens the record is so, so beautiful. It's, it's really profound. I, I, it's very seductive. It's sequenced very well because that's the entry point to the record. It says everything about the record in that first piece and sets up the rest of it very well. When I wrote that piece, that was a political piece too. I was thinking Mercedes Sosa, the singer. This would be back in the early 2000s. I was also thinking about El Salvador because I had some students who would say, oh yeah, one day somebody came into our village and carried away half of the adults. I was fighting inside that house, running the bed or whatever. And those kind of stories stuck with me. So when I write, a lot of times, I just kind of have this vision, not like a musical vision, but almost like you're seeing like a movie or a dream or something. And I just have this sort of dreamy, shadowy kind of visualization of like a soundtrack to a movie or something. You know, somebody sitting at the writing a letter. That was where Canto number two came in, Presente. Presente is something that people in Latin America say in political rallies, in demonstrations and marches. You say, Che Guevara Presente, that means he's with us. Salvador mm-hmm. Allende, Presente. Your father, Presente. But Presente also means being present. Those sort of things influence, I would say, most of the music I write in general. Visualizations of things that you didn't necessarily witness, but that you know of or were told about, or you have your own visual imagery of the events that you know about, and then you you set those to music? Yeah, it's just like, it's just like something comes to me. It's like you see something in a dream. Maybe it's related to reality or not. A lot of times I won't be playing. I'll just be sitting there thinking or watching a movie or something. Then I'll, I'll, I'll rush to my pedal steel and start playing. And, and, and a melody will come out. Oh. So I guess that's whatever kind of triggers that instinct or propensity to uh, start writing music. Are you able to perform live with these musicians or does geography and the practicalities of the world prevent that? That's an open question. We've had an invitation to play at a festival in the U.S., but financially it's difficult. For one, the airfare, which the festivals don't pay for, and for two, work visas. All right. The problems getting into the United States is, is a big one. So I don't know. I'm, I'm coming up hoping that, that there's a future. And I, I may go down to Chile and we may... Play a, play a few gigs as, as a group in Chile, which I would really enjoy doing. But that's, that's, that's all, all the big if. I could imagine that playing both there and here would be so important because of the, the dialogue between the two people and the, the sort of shared history. I can imagine it being equally, but very different, but profound in very different ways in each geography. Really neat experiences to look forward to, I hope. Yeah, I hope it happens. You never know. I'm I'm hoping and and I'm working at it. 
whether I'll succeed, I, I don't know. In your musical journeys over the years, have you encountered other women who are master musician pedal steel players and other musicians who are pushing the boundaries of or, or taking the pedal steel out of its traditional context in similar ways? There's not a lot of that with, with, with my particular instrument. My instrument is, as people often say, is tied to the hip, to country music. There are a lot of very good musicians play better than I do. I mean, they're virtuosos, but they're all in that sort of narrow confines, although narrow can be many things. And they think that like what I'm doing is stupid. I don't know how to play. I'm just faking it. Their, their five year old can do it. That sort of thing. There, there are not a lot of women playing the pedal steel guitar. There's one woman who plays experimental music in Scotland, Heather Lay, who was originally from, from Houston. The female musicians who I've really sort of identified, people like Mary Halverson, Ingrid Locke, Janella Peen, a cellist from D.C., and people like that. But not a whole lot of women playing pedal steel to begin with. I can count on, I can on the fingers of one hand and probably chop off two fingers while doing it, for the number of women who play my instrument, who I know of anyway, that play it really well. Outside of country music, it's just, there's very little understanding of the instrument. And usually I have to explain, oh, I've never seen that before, you know, sort of thing. I think of it as like second only to the harp in terms of something that's difficult to to gig around with. Like, I can't imagine lugging the pedal steel. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you can take it apart and it goes into a case. Unlike the the harp, <laughs> dismantle the harp and string it up again. Yeah, it weighs fifty pounds inside of a inside the case. It takes time to set up. So when you're touring, other musicians will sit in the hotel rooms and play the violin real softly, or go to the guitar or whatever. Or backstage, they do that. I can't do that because my instrument is not that mobile. But at least I get to sit down when I'm playing it. So that's, that's a good part. That's great. Are there any instances that you're familiar with or that you've been part of pedal steel? Is there any ensemble music for pedal steel, like multiple pedal steel players playing together? Yes, there is. It's hard to come by. I played a, a festival in Copenhagen, Denmark last summer with, with three pedal steel players. 
myself, the, the British steel player, B.J. Cole, who played on Elton John's Tiny Dancer, and Gustav Jongren, a lap steel player from Sweden. That's the only time I had, I, I'd played maybe with one, one other steel player at a time, but not very often. And there was a case that maybe 10 California steel guitarists got together and did something for somebody who was putting something together. I forget what it was. And then there's like maybe three or four pedal steel players will play the same time sometimes doing like a country song. It's just kind of a big sound. It's a nice sound and it's done well. It's not, but it's not often done well as rarely as it's done. I can imagine there are a lot of sonic possibilities for kind of like a chamber group almost. <laughs> Be interesting. Yeah, it's a baby of an instrument. There's just so much that can be done with that just hasn't even been attempted. Yeah. Speaking of that, have the seeds of your next project been planted? Well, I've been working on a, an album of um, Olivier Messiaen's music for the pedal steel guitar. He was a great French composer. And his music is just like the Chilean, very, very deep, but in a different way. And I, and I might do an album just, just of just improvisation. With the Chilean music, there's that kind of folk aspect of it. I was just thinking this morning, you just, I'll change my mind 10 minutes later, but right there, I was thinking, my country music, because it's direct and it's simple, the people listen to it, it's like, and blues. You, you listen to it, these sad songs, but they allow you to feel something that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily feel. Country music and blues is mostly about one person. Somebody stole my pickup truck and my, my sweetheart ran off with my dog and that sort of thing. And then you get into the Chilean wave of canción and that sort of music, Pete Seeger, where it's a bigger thing. You're talking more about society. And then you get to things like Messiaen and a lot of experimental music, at least the experimental music that I'm drawn to. It's more in the other direction. It's down inside you. So it's like a different part of the, the human psyche. And my music, I, I sort of try to, I mean, I guess maybe we all do in, in different levels, is to somehow access all of those. Because all of those are inside of us. All of us, we have the same thing going. I guess that's just what comes out of my adult brain. Thank you for making time and for talking about the record and for educating me and, and our listeners a little bit about the new songs of, of Chile. It's a beautiful album, and I love spending time with it. So thank you very much. Well, thanks, Lawrence. I'm, I'm glad you liked the record, and, and it's just been so nice talking with you. It made me think of some things I hadn't really considered you before, and that's, it's always great. Yeah, thanks. thank you for that. Thank you so much, Susan Alcorn. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you'd like to support our work, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. There you'll find our free episode archive, weekly postings on our official blog, and a ton more. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Music